Jeff here from besttechie.com, and this is Techie Bytes episode 28. Today I'm speaking with Craig Vodnik, co-founder and CEO at Cleverbridge. We discuss how he and his co-founders bootstrapped their company to profitability in two years, selling in the early days, and angel investing. Enjoy. This podcast is supported by Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your own professional website. Choose a template you love or start from scratch, drag and drop to customize anything, and use advanced design features like video backgrounds and image galleries. You can even add professional business solutions like an online store, booking system, or blog. I've personally tested and reviewed Wix on Best Techie and can say without a doubt that Wix is extremely easy to use and a great choice for both novice and advanced users. So go ahead, try it yourself. Go to Wix.com and create your own website today. That's Wix, W-I-X.com. I'm here with Craig Vodnik, co-founder and CEO of a company called Cleverbridge. He has been at this almost as long as I've been doing Best Techie, I feel like, <laughs> which is quite Close. a while. I've been, I've been doing Best Techie for 15 years. Craig, I think you've been doing it for a little over 13 years, right? Yeah, I think we're over 14 now, uh, right around 15, but I think you've got us by a little bit of time. <laughs> well, that's okay. You got you guys have grown a lot faster than I, than we have here at Best Techie, but that's uh but that's good. I'm I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I think this is uh, really exciting. Craig and I have known each other for quite some time. Um so it's really great to have you on. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I uh, and at least this time, it's not over uh, over a blackjack table in Las Vegas. <laughs> yes, there have been that, that has been quite the the uh, the situation that has occurred uh, quite a few times. But but that's okay. I mean, that's fun too, right? So yes, absolutely. At, at the, at, and one of those times, I think you guys got tickets to go see. Uh, oh, uh, what's that guy's name? The the red hair. I always forget his name. Oh, Carrot Top. Carrot Top. How could I forget that? Yeah. I did not go. I oh, you did not to be go. honest. I have no way. No interest. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. I'm glad we're here today. Um, so, before we get into you know into 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 this conversation, which I have a feeling is going to be a really good one, tell everyone a little bit about who you are in more detail, and you know what what you're doing at Cleverbridge, uh, and uh, you know fill them in. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Um, you know, I, I'm an engineer by trade, so I actually studied nuclear engineering, which I don't use anymore. Um, but right. it still it's, was. Well, let me just interrupt you real quick because I actually <laughs> I was I was doing a little bit of research. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was when I was when we decided to do this, and I wanted to look into more of your background and stuff, and I had no idea that you were a, that's what you studied in school. I, had, I that was news to me. <laughs> so I was like. I, I, I don't have a tattoo, that's for sure, and no one would know from the outside. Um, but yeah, you know, I studied nuclear engineering kind of by chance. I mean, it's a long story. I won't go into that. But um, when, uh, you know, I really like challenges and um, I, I like kind of math and science and hard problems. It's really fun for me to actually, um, you know, try to solve problems. I'm actually working on a, a puzzle at home right now just like a jigsaw puzzle and it's just I hadn't done one in a while and it's really fun but anyway um, yeah so who am I I, I study nuclear engineering um, had always been in computers or into computers growing up even back in the 80s when there were very early computers and I uh, just kind of picked up programming on the side when I was in grad school and the internet 
really the web had just started at that point. So I basically uh, taught myself programming, um, went from one, a couple, through a couple jobs of learning how to program or programming professionally, being the webmaster of the Chicago Tribune, putting the website up the first time in 1996. That was also just, another fact I had learned about you in my in my research. I had I had I had no idea that you did that you were on the team that was responsible for that. Yeah, it was really really fun time. I I can tell you that. Just you know, everything was so new. Nobody really knew what was going on. So if you you know you you, you anything was possible is really a wild west at that time. And uh, but one thing I realized very quickly was I was not a good programmer. Um, I could hack things together, but I didn't really know anything about fundamentals of programming. So I very quickly shifted into, I think, what is one of my skills, which is being able to understand the technology, but explain it clearly to people. And so that kind of played itself into moving into more of a business role. And uh, fast forward a few years, I uh, was working for a company that was, um, I was in Chicago, but this company was in Cologne, Germany. And um, I got along really well with my colleagues in Germany. That company was acquired. That was Element 5. And so when that happened, uh, myself and a few friends decided to go off and start a business, which is Cleverbridge. And so what we do as a company is we're a global subscription billing platform for digital product companies. When somebody wants to sell a digital product, it has... It can cross borders very easily, which can be complex. We make that really simple for people. And the typical company that that works with us is somebody that has uh, that sells into more than three countries because that's when the complexity starts blowing up. And so we um, we really focus on that digital product space, software, online services, um, those kinds of, of things. And um, you know we've grown to 300 people all bootstrapped and I suspect we'll talk a little bit about that later but in a nutshell that's uh, who I am and and what I do nice so okay so so let's back up a little bit 2005 you and your 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 two other co-founders decided to start this company cleverbridge um now the the internet in 2005 and the, just the world in technology was was a very different place i mean yeah there, there, you know, there weren't all these SaaS startups that you think about today that were selling thing, you know, digital products online or services online, you know, right. uh, nearly as it wasn't nearly as widespread. Why did you guys think that this was a a, a market opportunity to take advantage of? Well, the co- the company we were working for had done something very similar, so we knew the industry, but what we also uh, knew. And I remember putting this in our our business plan back in 2005 was that uh, broadband penetration uh, in in the U.S. was about I think 50-ish percent at that point was mm-hmm. growing you know four or five percent a year, and so people were shifting their behavior from going to a store to buy software and doing it online, and so we could see that the trend was going that way where more and more people were going to be be were going to buy online. And so we just said, you know, we know this business, we've got some money, we've got ideas on how to, um, you know, how to do things differently and better using the latest technology from 2005. And we knew, we knew people in the industry, we knew potential clients. So all of those factors together, 
you know, we just kind of got together and we said, we love this industry and we, we think that there's a, a long way to go on this. Honestly, we probably didn't really think at that point about, uh, you know, people having always on connections on their phones and being able to consume services, you know, without downloading any software. We, we didn't really think about it at, at that time in that way. So it was more opportunistic based on what we knew and, uh, and, and what we could see, let's say, for the next five, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. So when you, so when you started, uh, I guess well while while you were while you had this this idea right I guess even before you maybe started or you had started uh, to to decide you teamed up and and you were going to launch this company. Uh, did you speak? You said you you said you knew potential customers. Did you speak yep. with them before kind of incorporating or or really working on this or? Um, you know, I would say we didn't. Um, I guess I would say it this way. We were, you could call it industry friends, right? It's, it's not like the people you hang out with on the weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, it's more of those people that you see at trade shows or people that are your clients and you see them, you know them pretty well and you've got a good relationship with them. You understand what's inside their head about what they think of the industry, you know, your product at that time when we were working for somebody else. Um, so you have a good feeling for do they align from a values and, and sort of a vision perspective. And therefore, if you can build a better mousetrap, we we speculated, would they be interested to work with us or to bring mm-hmm. their business to us? And until we had our product um, in a beta uh, version and were able to show it, I don't really remember us talking to them too much about uh, – you know, what we were working on and, and would they be a client. Um, it was more of, we already know what, the kinds of things that we wanted to do and do better. And so we just went off in, in our own sort of vacuum and did that for six months before uh, ever showing them what we were working on or talking about it. Gotcha. So 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 it took you guys from, from uh, day zero to six months in to have a beta product that you could show off? Okay. I'd, pro- I'd probably even call it an alpha because at that point, at six months in, we were not ready for anybody to, I'd say, go live with our product. Mm-hmm. It took another five months before our first uh, our first client went live with a, a very small sliver of their business, testing us out, seeing how we were compared to the competition. And then once that happened, that sort of, that started the, the flywheel going where it was really just a momentum game, and and uh, everything was good, and, and people started coming over to us. So, so that's actually interesting. So that's so that's some new intel that I just got, and and, and considering that I know that you guys bootstrapped Cleverbridge to profit profitability in two years, that yep. it's more like one year, really. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, from the time we were alive, yeah, it's one year. Right, but right, you, right. You know, you gotta you gotta eat and drink beer that <laughs> no, that second year. Abs- absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> But that's 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 still. I mean, to me, that's even that's even more impressive. Like, it, like it, you built, you spent the year building the product. Let's say, right? You know, yep. and then, and then a year later, you were already profitable with it. What, yeah. What was what was that? What was that? You know, how did you do that? What what was? What did you focus on to to, to make that happen? Uh, great question. There's a, two things that I would say on this, and I, I do talk about this quite a bit and had not realized it at the time when we were doing it because, I mean, I'm not a professional entrepreneur per se. But uh, there's two key factors. One is 
cost side. So we as the founders, and there were actually four of us uh, founder executives and then three other co-founders that were developers that uh, that started with us. None of us were taking a salary at that time, right? So you can't be, I mean, you have to have a, a financial source to be able to do that. We were all in our 30s when we started the business. So we had some cushion to work off of in order to to uh, support ourselves. So cost side, right, profitable, but that was without us paying ourselves any salary at all. Second and probably more important factor in this is uh, the business model itself. A lot of these freemium business models are such that you're giving away the product, trying to get people to, to use it um, in order to much later make money. Think about Amazon as, as one example of, of a, a very public example doing this. But for us, the nature of our business is such that we were essentially signing enterprise contracts with companies where in you know the second and third year, a company would sign a contract with us. They would move their existing business from someone else to us. That would be like um, the equivalent of us getting a $200,000 a year contract uh, with each account that we signed. Right. And so that supports a lot of um, – uh, that supports quite a bit in the on the salary side of things, which is what helped us get you know basically break even and then profitable very quickly after that first year. Gotcha. So, so let's talk a little bit about this enterprise sales. Um, it's well, fun. a the enterprise sales cycle, but also b how you came up with pricing because I've I've talked to other other founders for for uh, enter, for B two B products, and yep. and pricing always. Is is a, is a, is a very difficult thing to kind of nail down, right? How how yeah. did you guys approach it? The the yeah, so great question. Uh, again, I think we were very fortunate, and and I I've said this before, and I'll say it here for you is I feel like we were blissfully ignorant during the early years of Cleverbridge. We really didn't know what we were doing. We were just sort of following along what we knew from the industry. And the reason I say that is because in this specific case, when you talk about pricing, we basically went with what the industry sort of pricing had been in a general sense, which is a percentage of revenue. So for every dollar, you know, our job, we're, we're effectively like a cash register, right? So we're collecting the money on behalf of our client we keep our percentage and then we hand the rest over. Think like Stripe and Braintree and, and those kinds of things. It's somewhat similar. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the really important part here though is that when you talk about pricing, we were able to attach our price to something that's very valuable to our clients, which was you know, uh, payment collection. And so when we look at our pricing, like we could have said something to the effect of, hey, let's put Let's charge for the platform to use it on an annual basis. We'll charge a maintenance fee, and then we'll just do straight pass-through on all of the revenue that we collect. That's one way we could have done it, and that's actually the way that a lot of um, traditional, let's say, retail-focused e-commerce companies do it. But that's because they don't actually take on the role of merchant of record like we do. And what that means is we are responsible for collecting the revenue, collecting the payment, charging the appropriate tax, dealing with compliance and legal uh, rules around the world. So we basically tied our uh, pricing to the value that we were offering. And it just so happened that it was easy to say, well, our value is just a higher percentage of the money that we collect. So it's, um, 
you know, it's changed over the years. Pricing has definitely changed and you get into things like mixed pricing where it's a percentage plus a fixed amount. You know, those prices drop on, let's say, maybe domestic U.S. transactions, but we charge a higher percentage on non-U.S. transactions because those are more expensive. So it's a, it's pricing is a really complex topic. And um, we're in, I think, a, a market that it was relatively easy to set pricing. But I know having, you know, talked to a lot of people, how challenging pricing is a general, a general topic. Right. And, 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 and also, I don't know if you guys still offer, like, I remember, I remember you guys, uh, when I would, when I would check out and I would, I would notice it was a Clever Rich page, you guys would also offer, uh, and this is like going back, um, a CD like version of the software, if yep. you wanted it as an additional cost to the, to yep. the person buying it. Um, I don't know if you guys still offer those, those CDs, do you? There are what? <laughs> How many millions of AOL dial-up subscribers are still out there? I mean, that's true. There are there are quite a, there are quite a few million. Yeah. So yeah, short answer. Yeah, we still offer it. It's it's uh, not as big, I'd say, as it used to be. But I'm kind of surprised as well that people some some people just feel really um, only feel comfortable if they have that tangible thing that they can put on a shelf and say. I paid money for this and here it is nobody can take it away from me mm -hmm. and uh, I think that that's a mentality that will change over time um, because so many products going forward new things that are created are not delivered in that physical fashion or won't be it's only consumed through the internet and right. that's uh, that's gonna require people to change their mentality about it no absolutely so talking you mentioned stripe just before now yep. Stripe Stripe was a company that wasn't around in 2005 uh, or even 2006 2006 I don't I forgot exactly when they were founded but it wasn't that long ago. Yep. Um, how how do you guys view how do you, how do you at Cleverbridge and you uh, as the CEO of Cleverbridge view Stripe? Uh, are they a competitor of yours now or or you know what what is that what is that relationship like? Yeah, I think you could you could view them as a competitor. I would um, I would I would put PayPal out there as a better example of, if you will, a frenemy, right? Because Stripe is a great tool for entry level uh, companies, right? When you're just trying to get started and you just want to plug something in, or you want you know you want to kind of own the whole thing, Stripe is a great way to get started. Uh, but the problem comes in when the complexity, or when your business grows and com and it becomes more complex. You're selling into more countries. You're dealing with taxation. You know the the many rules that are changing around not only the U.S. but the world uh, in terms of how how you have to handle customer data, privacy, and, right. and now with GDPR, you guys, I'm sure, take all that into account when taking exactly. people's information. Yeah, exactly. So Stripe is like this this great like baseline piece. And it's great to start with, but there's so much that you have to add on top of it, which is where we come in. We add all that stuff on top. Um, that uh, you know, are they a competitor? Not really. People don't choose between Cleverbridge and Stripe. Right. Uh, they generally look at the problem that they're trying to solve, and then they look for the right solution. People who start with Stripe and continue with Stripe um, over the cliff because they just say that this is a, such a great technology, I have to keep using it, they end up going over the cliff because they run into all kinds of problems um, that they essentially have to reinvent the wheel in developing with their internal systems and, and people. 
PayPal is a really good example, though, of somebody who I think has done it right, where they, um, you know, that you can, people, surprise. I think before Stripe came along, PayPal was much more of that entry-level solution that people would use in order to just accept credit cards. Um, but but PayPal's really got a, a, a nice ecosystem going, whereby companies can use PayPal to do what I said, just collect credit cards or, or accept payment. You can also obviously accept payment from then people who are who have a PayPal account. But we actually plug PayPal in as just a, a, a payment method in the, the shopping experience and the subscribe experience because um, it's just, it's it's considered a, a, a pretty uh, healthy and, and used uh, or popular payment method around the world. And in Germany, for example, I wanna say it's like 30 plus percent of online transactions through our system are done with PayPal, mm-hmm. by far the most of any country. And it's because of the culture in Germany where they're, they're the, you know, privacy is so important to them. They don't want to give the credit card out. They'd rather just send the money via PayPal, and it's it's a very popular payment method there. But again, they they've opened their system up to play nice with other people, and so they don't really care if they're just a payment method or if they're handling all of the uh, customer buying experience. Right. It's actually interesting that you bring up the whole PayPal thing up because two two things. One, there was recently an article uh, on the Atlantic by uh, Taylor Lorenz. And she wrote how, how kids love PayPal because they're not old enough to have a credit card, but they can have a yeah. PayPal account. And yeah. and they're paying for things with their PayPal account. And the second little tidbit that I found interesting was when, when my wife Mandy was um, running her online boutique, uh, she didn't accept PayPal payments right away. And then she decided one day, all right, I'm going to start accepting payments over PayPal as well as credit cards. And yeah. her sales boost like increased a lot. People just yep. prefer to pay with PayPal sometimes. There's there's a huge percentage of the population out there that that definitely likes to use it. Jeff, I think it's it's actually different than what you just said, and I'll tell you why because it's the way I think. It's a slush fund. <laughs> what you the money you have in your PayPal account? What you know when I go to something, I'm like, ah, do I really want this? You know, should I buy it? I mean, it's forty dollars, for example. You know, you just go, okay, well, I have that money in PayPal. So you just, it, you, do, you don't feel like it's really coming out of your monthly budget or right. it's, it's coming out, it's not coming directly out of your bank account. It's in your, your PayPal account. And I, people, <laughs> I think, think about it as a slush fund. That, that's, that's could certainly be true. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I could totally see that. I mean, that, that does make some sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I like my yeah. PayPal account. I can I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, that's good to it's good to hear that you like PayPal. I actually like PayPal too. A lot of a lot of uh, I get a lot of PayPal payments uh, for for best techie stuff that we do. Um, yeah. A lot of people prefer to pay with PayPal. Uh, but I I'm curious to know, you know, and I've heard through the grapevine that Cleverbridge is planning to kind of expand their offerings a bit. Um, what what can you tell me or tell us about that, if uh, if anything? Sure. Yeah. You know. Um. I. Th- in a way, it's it's sort of the story. It's the evolution of software, right? The evolution of consuming, uh, let's say, services, where you know software was essentially you you're wanting to do something, and um you know you're buying a desktop productivity tool or you're you're buying a CD, you know making software whatever it was you know 
10 years ago. Um, antivirus is another one. And um, so the evolution of software is such that right people are, con- are delivering software experiences or services through the web. They're no longer providing that as a service, uh, uh, sorry, as a download product. And so it's very analogous to what we've been doing over the years of, of providing a you know, a, an e-commerce platform for billing for these software companies um, on a global basis. But the way that um, s- services uh, are sold and consumed requires a slightly different style and focus of a, a company's business uh, or a, a it requires a different infrastructure, so to say. It's more API driven, it's more about revenue retention, it's more about customer accounts, something that is is more um, customer centric than transaction centric. And so we um, are working on and, and are very soon releasing a, um, a new way of interacting with our platform that is more API driven than uh, call it uh, like full stack, a black box version. Gotcha. That's 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 super interesting uh, to me because I you know there's clearly a huge market you know that of, of I guess of, of businesses that would love to I guess utilize your your product and your service um, uh, in a different way you know they may not have they may not need the kind of way it's set up now if that makes sense yeah 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 it's just different you know people are yeah the I mean it's it there's a real shift going on in the market of how consume i mean how 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 many times jeff do you have right now a subscription to some online service right spotify yeah. something like that a uh, lot more than time. you did five years bunch. ago yeah and 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 now even apps are, are moving towards subscription-based models as well i mean yeah. um i mean typically you, know, you you guys you guys know but like there was a, 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 you know every year you had your antivirus renewal right or something like right. that but now like even small apps you know they have you know like three ninety nine a month yeah. or you know something like that. Well, so. and 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 when you think about like Salesforce, I think they really sort of set the 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 stage for a lot of this, where um, the value you're getting, Dropbox being another one, the value you're getting is the is the data being stored in somebody else's cloud, or somebody else's servers, and therefore, the value to you or the justification given by the the business is, hey, we're, we're doing something for you every day. We're the backup provider, right? You used to have that, the backup drive that you'd plug into your home computer mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. order to pre- prevent yourself from losing your data on your hard drive. Well, that's all been moved to the cloud, right? It's AWS, it's Dropbox, it's Box.net, it's all these guys. And you're paying for that on a monthly basis because they're doing a service for you, which is making sure you don't lose your data. And so businesses are really finding new ways um, not they're finding new value that they, they can offer consumers and businesses that actually aligns well with a subscription business model and um, companies that think about their businesses in a in that way not in saying I wanted I want to pick my customers pockets every month for money but instead saying I want to offer value to my uh, my customers and I want to I want to use the technology as it exists today in order to do that, a lot of times that results in a really uh, very reasonable uh, you know, monthly subscription bill for the customer. Mm-hmm. Do, do you do you feel that uh, we're we're on track to to, to, to be let's say oversubscribed uh, 
you know, if if you will, uh, uh, you know, go with me on that. Like, yeah. are there go are are we are we on track for too many of these subscription based models? I I think like Gartner has in their um they have a wave kind of it's not called the wave but it's a a hype cycle, and we're certainly going to see pushback from consumers on subscription products. I know that you know there's like cars is a good example. Look at Tesla. Uh, I don't own a Tesla. I've never owned a car. Don't want a car. But on Tesla, they have control over you from remote if they wanted to. I don't know if they do this, but they could charge you a monthly fee to access those updates that allow the allow the car to run faster, to you know, uh, turn better, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you have a car that was not internet connected, you basically own that car, and so people. This is like a this is a probably a 30-year societal shift, right? People are used to owning and we're moving towards this rental society. There's going to be a pushback at some point where people say, "Hey, I don't want any more subscriptions." But the next generation that comes along, it will just be second nature to them and they'll wonder, "Why did anybody own anything before?" Right. No interesting point. I uh I I personally am not 100% sure how I feel about it all the way. I think you know, there are certain things that I like to say I, I own, um, but that's maybe just because I'm stuck in my way, in particular ways about me, about yeah. specific things. Um, Think about music. I, music yeah. is the perfect example that it went from ownership society to rental, and it actually, it it actually made a pretty seamless transition. I think over the last three years, right? Everybody yeah. had tapes, then CDs. And, you know, you used to write burn stuff on CDs and then you had your digital music library in iTunes or wherever you had it on your computer. You had to put that on a backup drive because you didn't want to lose it. It was it took so much time right, <laughs> right. to create it. And then Spotify comes along and just knocks it out of the park, makes it really easy for people to stream the music. And that's only possible because of all of the always on devices that are now out there. Right. 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 Reliable Internet access and, and those types of devices without that it's not possible to offer that type of solution, but music has really made that transition uh, right in front of us, right in front of us all the last five years. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to admit, I, I was I was one of those holdouts for the longest time up until Apple uh, released Apple Music that I, that I, uh, I was not subscribed to a music subscription service. I, I just don't like Spotify that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the player, I just, I, just didn't really like it. I felt like it, a lot of the times they didn't. They I felt like the catalog was lacking um, in certain areas. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's better now, but uh, but yeah. I mean, I just I just got a bad feel for it. And I just never really used it. Jeff, it's let's be honest. It's because it didn't have an Apple logo next to it. <laughs> am I right that, or am I right? You're right. Uh, that was certainly <laughs> a very large part of it. I just was convinced that they were going to come out with a music uh, subscription <laughs> model at, at some point. It just made yeah. it just made sense. Um, yeah. So I want to I want to go back to bootstrapping a little and talking about that a little bit more in terms of like what is bootstrapping like for you guys at Cleverbridge? This that's what you you know literally you 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 had money that you had saved up. Mm-hmm. You and your co-founders put it into the business. Said, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna commit this amount of money uh, to, to to get started," and yep. and that's what you did. And 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 uh, and I guess you know when it, it, it's 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 interesting because a I'm sure you you have much more control over the business now than if you had taken outside capital. 
obviously. Yep. Um, so you have much more control and and say in terms of, you know, I guess alongside your founder or your co-founders, um, or this is what we're going to do, you know, and you don't have some outside investor kind of breathing down your neck saying, no, uh, you know, have you seen what, uh, you know, who, what, what so-and-so is doing? Uh, we need to, you know, they want, they want to see their returns on their investment yep. and things like that. Um, but I guess my question is what, when do you, like, when is it the right time? To, 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 to bootstrap and when when is it the right time to to take outside money uh, if, if there if there is such a delineation you know fine line between uh, choosing one or the other yeah it, it, it's a very um, complex question actually <laughs> yeah. not, not, not because of the way you asked it but just the question itself is quite complex um, you know so when's the right time to bootstrap I think um, there's a couple of things there's a couple of, uh, let's say, areas I would consider. It's not, um, yeah, there's a couple areas to consider. So first of all, A, can you afford to bootstrap, right? Not a lot of people can. You know, you're generally, it, it, it would be an entrepreneur that's a little later, you know, has some experience, um, has some money put away, maybe has a team of founders, maybe has some family money that they can put to work. That's one way that it could be a good idea boot, to bootstrap. The second, um, point I would make is if the business is one like in our business I think enterprise sales where we were collecting money we didn't have a collections issue you know we could basically we could take big steps forward with each contract which we could get relatively easily that was the business model really made a lot of sense for us to bootstrap Um, but conversely I think that um, if you if there's an opportunity to grow really fast and own a market I'd say that's a that's even if it's an enterprise product, I'm not sure that that's a good time to bootstrap, because when there's a greenfield out there, someone else will likely come along once they see your idea and if it starts working, and they will then find a way to invest in it or get put you know five, ten, fifteen million to work with a, a small team, and they could actually overpass you. So. You know, when there's that big green field in front of you, I think that that's a good time to consider taking investment. Obviously, it comes with some some risk uh, and a lot of gray hair, I would argue. <laughs> but uh, and, and I have gray hair too, but it's not because of taking money, um, just age. <laughs> so, so you know, it's um, if you're a, a single uh, a founder, it's also sometimes hard to get investment because investors typically look for teams mm-hmm. um, they they want to know that it's not all riding on just one person and their their individual skill set or their you know their their mental sanity um, you know if it's a freemium model it's probably hard to bootstrap so again going back to business model I think that that also gives an indication of which way you want to go uh, you know if you there's a great quote or a great question I ask people um, when I when they ask for money, I say, "Do you want to be king, or do you want to be rich?" It does. It they're not mutually exclusive, but it's hard to be both. And mm-hmm. you can be king if you are bootstrapping because you don't have to answer to somebody else. But uh, you can get rich a lot faster, let's say, or maybe even a bigger bank account, perhaps, if you take money because you're theoretically accelerating the end date of that company 
hopefully at a much higher valuation than you would if you were bootstrapping. So there's a lot of different things to consider there. And, you know, what do you personally want, I think, is is usually the place that I start. What do people what's really driving the person to do what they want to do? And then also looking at that business model might require you to go one way or another. Mm-hmm. That's some good advice. I, 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 I have to agree uh, with it as well. I think, you know, because you could be you could be cash poor and equity rich and be the king. But, yeah. you know, if, if you're if you're not if you if you can't grow the business in a way that uh, that in the way that it needs to be grown, then you're not going to make any progress, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at a lot of companies, especially ones that once they've sold and, you know, I'm very surprised in a lot of cases how well, you know, certain businesses did that I would have thought never in a million years would I ever invest in that or think that it could be as big as it turned out to be. But at the same time, you also hear a lot of these stories about in companies that have investment and maybe they've raised 60, 70, 80 million and they get sold for pennies on the dollar because something went wrong in that process or maybe the business shouldn't, you know, there's lots of different things that happen. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, um, it's a very, you know, Snap is a good example. Snap wouldn't exist if they, or Twitter for that matter, those businesses wouldn't exist today if they didn't have venture money. Right. Because they They're couldn't afford, yeah. yeah, they couldn't afford to pay for all those people to help build it to do the land grab um, at that time, so. No, that's a good point. Um, uh, let's we're going to talk about investing in just a second, but before we do, I want to let's go back to your early days at Cleverbridge, okay? And mm-hmm. where you were, where you were bringing on some of, let's say, the first customers, potential customers that you were talking to. Um, was it tough? You know, how, what did you learn <laughs> after the first couple of pitches? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I'm laughing because the first. Um, the first uh, client that we won in the U.S., which I pitched and and uh, convinced him and all that, uh, within I think about three months, we lost the first one. He went online, and then it's a long story. Uh, mm-hmm. It goes back to a bandwidth question or bandwidth comment I made earlier about internet access at that time. But basically, um, you know, we lost that first one after he already signed, and then you know was A/B testing us. So it's a little bit of a painful memory, but. Uh, you know, the thing is, is I, I really enjoyed it. Once I got, once I learned what I was doing from a sales perspective, I really enjoyed those pitches and 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 especially the early days because that's when you, as the founder or an, a very early employee, have so much control over the ultimate success of the business because there's not many people in the company, and what you do and how you how you act and and how much effort you put into it goes a long way towards setting this setting the curve at which you're going to be growing over the you know in the future right so things I learned I mean I learned so much in those early years um, I think in the early days I just used to sell hey we have a really cool product let me show you the product often sold itself and over mm-hmm. the years I would I would start getting questions from people and I know there was a transition maybe six seven eight years ago where I realized that, um, especially as we started talking to larger companies, the people we were talking to, they didn't care about our product, honestly, one bit. Let's say they didn't want to see it. They couldn't care less what it looked like. It could not sell itself. Those people were looking at me as a as a founder and as an executive of Cleverbridge and wanting to know, is this somebody I can do business with? 
what about all of the things outside of the the product itself? What's your your continuity plan? You know, business continuity. Mm-hmm. How many data centers do you have? What happens if you can't meet payroll? Like, there's all this other stuff that comes into the discussion that could right. easily derail. And the, especially, the sales especially for a company like Cleverbridge, which is literally handling, yeah, their money. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> if you yeah. Had, if and you guys reputation. just shut down, yeah, and, exactly. If if people couldn't buy something simply, it didn't, or there was constant issues, or it was always down, or you guys just packed it up and went home, yeah, you know, they'd be left in the lurch and in very bad situation. Yep. Yeah. yeah <laughs> repu- reputation takes a, a you know a minute to destroy and a lifetime to build. Mm-hmm. And so you know you're you're sitting across from those people, and so I mean it was just. It was really interesting, um, especially reflecting on a lot of those conversations, a lot of those meetings, those presentations, you know, looking at the questions and and then also having somebody or uh, other people with you that you could then later discuss, hey, when I said this, you know, I could tell that that wasn't the right answer or that was not what they expected. Right. What was and, the reaction in the room like? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's it was for me. It's like it was reading really, a jury. Yeah. It's like yeah. Exactly. Yeah. In a way, yeah. It wasn't Perry Mason, but it was something better, hopefully. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, no, it was really, really, really fun. I mean, I love that part of it. I love getting out and, and talking to people and, and especially the competitive aspect of it was really, really fun. But I mean, it's just sales is, is hard. I think that what we've learned is the best salespeople are, especially in, in what we do, so this wouldn't apply for everybody, but I think it's going that direction in general in society is – it's all about um, it's about trust, being a thought leader, being a resource to the to the person or the business that you're trying to sell, and not really selling directly, right? You're you're helping to educate them, and trying to show why you as a as a person representing a business is somebody that uh, they should consider and hopefully trust uh, giving their business to. No matter what kind of product it is, at least from an enterprise, uh, a B two B perspective, and um, you know, so that's why I personally do a fair amount of blogging, and you know, I'm on Instagram and all this kind of stuff, showing not just the work side of, of things, but also showing showing some of the personal side of what I'm interested in, so that people know that there's a real person here, not just somebody trying to you know sell, so to say. Right. No, and from what I understand, you're a bit of an audiophile. If, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're at least into audio gear. Yeah. Right? I, I I checked out I checked out your Instagram, and there's a lot of a lot of ref. I guess are they? Would you consider them refurbished or refinished or? Yeah, like, but really mostly. Cool? Re- yeah. Yeah, mo- mostly refurbished. So I I just have picked up a hobby of um, refurbishing 1950s and 60s uh, stereo consoles. Um, and, uh, you know, never, I mean, again, never took any electrical engineering classes, had to learn how to read these electrical diagrams, figure out, you know, watch YouTube videos, read blogs, stay at a holiday and express to figure out how to do this (laughs) stuff. And it's been, it's been really fun. And it's, it's just like, I mean, I have a, a beautiful 1965 Grundig stereo in my office where I play records and, and actually still listen to the radio. Uh, but I set up a Bluetooth. I, I created a Bluetooth connector for it so I can stream music through it. And it's just, it's a That's great awesome. talking point. You know, people love seeing it and, and just sort of discussing it. And, and it's really, I think, take, uh, making a comeback um, uh, in the market because 
I know a lot of people now that are really interested in this, even if they haven't actually invested in one yet. But right. I just I refurbish them in my basement for fun. How, how, how did you get into that? Was it just like you saw one walking down the street one day and you're like, I'm going to bring this home? Or how, how did that happen? I, I probably saw a few on the streets over the years and always thought, well, what the hell? I don't want to touch that. But <laughs> what, what really happened was um, I was uh, probably 20 years ago was uh, clearing out my grandmother's house and uh, with my uncle. And he said to me, we were down to the last couple pieces in the house. And he said, oh, here's this stereo from, you know, uh, uh, your mom gave it to your grandparents for their 25th wedding anniversary in 1962. I was like, wow, that's really cool. Never knew that. Um, he said, do you want it? I don't want it. I said, yeah, I'd love to have it. Uh, I don't know what I'll do with it. And so I basically put it in storage for about 15 years. And then one day, one of my employees here, he was telling me about records and, you know, he's 24, 25 at the time. And he's talking about records. And I just kind of scoffed at him. But <laughs> I said, you know, I've got some records in my basement if you want to come by and take a look through them. And that that one thing led to another. And then I, I was there showing him some of the records. It gave him a few. I thought, you know, I have some time now. Maybe I'll try to figure out how to get this stereo working. And uh, that's kind of how it all began. And then when I finished or was working on the first one, I realized that people were still selling and throwing them away on Craigslist. So I went online and I started buying them up and just storing them in my basement. So at one point I probably had <laughs> six or seven of them in there just waiting to, you know, I didn't even know how to fix them yet, but I just thought they were beautiful and, and all that. So um, anyway, that's how I got into it. Nice. So, so are you, are you, are you like a big vinyl record guy or, or, or do you I, prefer like the digital audios? I'm definitely into vinyl now. I mean, I've over the last three or four years, I've probably bought, I don't know, two or 300 records and, um, uh, acquired some other ones from my uncle that he, he basically got for free from other people. So it's, it's really fun. And interesting, interestingly enough though, Jeff, I am uh, also now into uh, refurbishing, uh, CRT TVs. So I got, oh. I, again, to this whole idea of, you know, wanting to continue to evolve and learn new stuff. I, I was at one house, I was buying a stereo and then there was a TV there. It didn't work. And they said it didn't work. They said 50 bucks. And I looked at it and I thought, well, someday I'll have time to work on this. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, a couple of years ago, I got inspired and I, these are dangerous. Careful. Be very careful <laughs> with those cathode ray tubes. <laughs> oh, I've been shocked a few times. Don't worry. That's why I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, okay. So I, I have one more question I want to get. I want to talk about with you about investing before we get to the lightning round. Okay. And that has, so, so you've been doing some angel investing. Um, from what from, from what I understand from your angel.co page, you you've actually had two exits as well. So congrats on that. Um, what do you, what do you look for when you're investing in a company? You know, what kind of companies do you like to invest in? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's a that's a great question. Uh, when I first started doing it, I had no idea what I was doing, so I thought every company could be successful because, as an entrepreneur, I looked at them and said, "Well, I could see how that can work." Mm -hmm. um, and then with age, or let's say experience, and realizing some of them weren't good investments, I started saying, "Okay, I'm only going to invest in things that I know." So it's e-commerce, it's you know, software, it's those kinds of things. And now. Um, you know, I see things that I've again missed on because it was a, a, a CPG product or some software for an industry I had no idea about and I didn't invest in it. So what that has taught me is um, 
I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> I can't I can't pick winners. Um, but it's a very tough thing to do. Yeah. Well, and the, and well, it, you you're following Warren Buffett's advice though, right? Invest in what you know. Uh, I mean, well, that's, I, that's typically yeah. what he says. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it hasn't worked out for me yet. Let's, let's okay. put it that way. But what I would say is, it's it's the entrepreneur, right? At the end of the day, I mean, they talk about it being the horse or the the jockey, not the horse. And I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of truth to that because the jockey is the one that, when you're you, when you run into that stormy cloud, the jockey is the one that's going to tell the horse to go around the storm or or go through it and and head this way. So a lot of it is jockey. I think I sort of mentioned this earlier, business model. You know, the business model is so critical to the success of a company. And if an entrepreneur doesn't understand what the business model is, or let's say is looking at selling something for $9.99 a month, you got to sell a lot of those. And mm-hmm. so that, you know, it, it there's there's actually some kind of good structure around this to say, you know, when the when the sales price, the, the average uh, contract value is, let's say, 100000 well, that's probably a pretty good business. Determine depending on how many are out there that you could sell to. If it's ten thousand, it gets harder. If it's ten dollars a month, you got to sell millions of those for it to be a venture investable business. So right. there's some rules that that investors have now, or at least that that I've seen them talking about that uh, help guide that decision making process around the business model. But um, certainly, it's the people, and you know, I do like to invest in things where I know something about the the industry specifically software and commerce but i would say i i don't i'm not gonna um i would invest in things outside of that now only because i've learned you never know you have to get enough investments out there to play portfolio theory and uh and and that's why actually investors in general don't bet like all of their chips on one or two hands, right? They they take right. and they spread the chips around because they don't know either. And that's the dirty secret. They know that they don't know who's going to win. Right. No, exactly. And it's actually funny that, you, that, you, that, you, that what you were saying before, uh, quick story and then we'll get to the lightning round. So I was at this, uh, this tech event, like people were, I guess, pitching their companies and, and then I was in the audience and I got, and I, and then I started asking all these questions and then, and then, the funniest thing happened to me after the event. Some woman comes up to me and she goes, "Are you a venture capitalist?" <laughs> I, said, I said, "No, why? <laughs> no, why?" She goes, "You were asking some really good questions, like, like just stuff like an investor would would ask." I'm like, "Oh well, thanks, I appreciate that." So maybe in another life I can become a, a venture capitalist. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Uh, <laughs> everybody's looking for money nowadays, right? And money's pretty easy to get with the economy the way it is, and you know the stock market and everything but uh right you got yeah, your the, dumb money and you got your you got your yeah. the money that you actually want right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> awesome well craig you've made it through to the lightning round which of course uh, is supported by wix where you can create a professional website today at wix.com that's wix.com so craig whenever yes. you're ready you let me know and we'll get started oh let's wait about 10 minutes and then i'll be all ready. right i'm gonna go get a drink <laughs> and i'll be i'll be back okay <laughs> all right, all right. All right. Well, I'm ready. All right, best kind of pizza. Ooh, I I suspected you were gonna ask this. You know, I'm not a deep dish pizza fan that much. Okay. Um, but you're, you have I to just, let everyone know you're actually based in Chicago. I am I based in Chicago, <laughs> and I do like some deep dish, but um, I'm definitely not a New York pizza fan. So, I would oh, say I'm I'm, I'm ending this right now. I, that's fine. 
Thin crust pizza is my favorite, so it's not really Chicago style deep dish. I mean, I'm I'm not trashing it, but I'm not a big fan of it either. Interesting. So I actually just I actually just learned about a new type of pizza called Detroit style, which is actually oh. I think really good. Too. Um, what's well, on De- uh, what's Detroit style? It's like it's it's kind of like deep dish, but it's not as deep and it's more crispy. You might like it if you like thin crust. It's, okay. it's interesting and, and like they uh you can put like i had one with like peppers and like uh i don't know maybe artichoke or like a bunch of like a bunch of things on it, it was really good um if there's green stuff on it i don't want it uh okay <laughs> i don't remember the exact details like, the peppers <laughs> might have been green um is that Max- pizza rat still running around new york he might be i haven't seen him lately that guy's pretty cool <laughs> that rat <laughs> Uh, Mac or PC? Oh, another good one. You know, I, it's probably going to be shocking to your audience, but I'm a Chromebook guy, and oh, okay. that's because I like to think different. <laughs> that's a combination of <laughs> of worlds right there. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite season? Oh, good question. I guess I'm a summer guy. I mean, I do like fall and and spring, but I'd say summer is definitely preferred for me. Not a fan of the Chicago winter, though. No. I mean, it's it's okay, but it's, yeah. Who would choose to live in, you know, the north if they didn't have to, right, uh-huh. From a for those winters? If you could eliminate the winters, I think, you know, living in New York or Chicago and, and Milwaukee, it's, it's, it can't be beat. But uh, the winters, yeah, that's the, that's the big negative. Uh-huh. Uber or Lyft? Lyft. Marvel? Gotta have a moral compass. <laughs> exactly. Well... <laughs> Dara over at Uber now is trying to turn... Have you seen all those TV commercials? He's trying to no. turn things around. Oh, okay. Oh, good. <laughs> Marvel or DC Comics? Oh, that's one I, I honestly can't answer. What's the, what's the group that has the bat, has Batman? DC. So I'd probably say DC because the that uh, Kevin... Or was it Nolan? Uh, Whoever, Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan, those movies were pretty amazing, so I'd have to say them. But I'm not a big comic uh, universe person. Okay, fair enough. I, I love I love I love the the Nolan Batman uh, trilogy as well. Too. It's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, last one. Here we go. Favorite piece of tech that you own? Oof. So now by tech, can could that be 1960s tech? Sure. Could be anything. Anything tech related. Yeah, I'd probably say, um, okay, so I have a 1961 um, stereo console, so that has a a turntable, a a radio, and it's all tube-based, and it has a TV built into it that I'm restoring right now. That's my favorite piece. That sounds pretty awesome. You're going to have to send me a picture of that. Yeah, I will. Once it's all all set up. It's, It's beautiful. I mean, it's in immaculate condition for, what, 50... 55 years old uh-huh. and uh i'm still trying to get it all working but i got the radio working the tv it's going to take a little more work cool well you'll have to keep me posted uh awesome well you made it through the lightning round i think this went great i have one last request of you so if you if you if sure. anyone wants to get in touch with you uh what's the best way for them to do that best way would be through twitter or instagram uh at craig vodnik c-r-a-i-g-v-o-d-n-i-k um or my last name at cleverbridge.com. You can send me an email. Awesome. Well, Craig, really great having you on the podcast. It's been wonderful. I, I really appreciate you, uh, you you coming by and, and talking with me today. 
Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Really uh, great, great catching up with you. It was quite, a, quite funny and fun uh, <laughs> conversation and uh, love your podcast. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash besttechie and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.